Hello and welcome or welcome back to the podcast where research transforms lives. I'm Dr Rosie Anderson and every Thursday this summer I'm inviting you to take a deep dive with me into the UCL research that has changed the world around you. This episode we're talking about the ways human health is intertwined with the health of every ecosystem and every other living thing on earth. While it's been a pretty established fact that poor living conditions will make you sick since the time of Jon Snow, no, not that Jon Snow, the Victorian epidemiologist Jon Snow, it's only been in recent years that we started to realise how destroyed landscapes, habitat loss and climate change increase our chances of getting ill. That's a pretty mind-blowing idea, and not without its controversies, as we'll explore. More than anything, though, it's complex and hard to measure and predict. That's why Professor Kate Jones of the Centre for Biodiversity and Environmental Research at UCL has spent her career identifying the risk factors for human health when ecosystems are damaged and mapping hotspots where diseases are more likely to flare up. In particular, she's helped governments and international agencies monitor zoonosis, where infections jump to humans from another species. Kate and I spoke with Dr Chris Van Tulliken, who you may know from his work on TV and radio, but who is also a researcher and clinician at UCL looking at infectious diseases, about how this poses huge challenges for him and his colleagues as they try to stay ahead of emerging pandemics like the one we've just lived through, and how Kate's research is key to preventing them happening in the first place. After all, can any of us truly be healthy if we live on a dying planet? Uh, Chris, let's start with you, because uh, I want to know, um, as a clinician, as a practicing doctor, how did you become interested in this whole thing of diseases jumping from species to species and especially humans to animals, I guess? So my my PhD was in was in. Um, how can I do this? How can anyone make their PhD interesting? Um, yeah. My PhD was 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 looking at uh, 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 the differences between the re- HIV related viruses that infect non human primates and the main uh, HIV one that infects human beings that's responsible for for pandemic HIV. And I was studying at one of the little molecules that HIV carries around with it as part of its toolkit to get inside our cells and 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 hijack them for its own ends. And um, so I was studying a, 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 I was studying the VPR molecule from SIV mon, which is the simian immunodeficiency virus from a Mona monkey. And it turned out when I went back through photographs from a decade earlier that I had lived for a period of time at um, the, the, the borders where the borders meet from Central African Republic and uh, Republic of Congo and Cameroon. And this is where I had been living um, with a remote uh, community of people called the Bayaka. And I'd been learning much more from them than, than they were from me. And I'd been been trying to work a little bit as a doctor. And this is the place where HIV jumped from um, a chimpanzee. We're sure it was a chimpanzee to a human being. It's near a place called Malundu. And um, while I was there, we I ate everything that they ate. And the main monkey, it turned out that we had been eating because that this was this is the diet of people who live in forests was a Mona monkey. And so there's this sort of strange, um, you know, uh, I, I, I mean, I'd love Kate to, to explain it. But to a scientist, it's very unsettling when these things happen because it feels like there's some morphic field in the universe 
that has meant my whole life was being organized towards studying the monkey that I'd once eaten. But uh, yeah, so so I'd spent time in the forest at the site with the community of people um, at, at the place where HIV jumped. And I think from that experience, I was really interested in how uh, pathogens make their way from the, the natural world into the human world. It's interesting because that's one of the big go-to examples, isn't it, HIV, when it comes to this kind of phenomenon. But as... Uh, somebody who's practiced medicine, you know, is this something which crops up more often than we think in um, in in other fields and in, 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 with other diseases? Is this more common than, than we realise? We come up against, you know, the technical stuff is we suddenly find ourselves coming up against the political and the social and the cultural stuff more than in any other field. So, yes, HIV is just one of the I mean, we've. We've then had SARS-CoV-2, and even as SARS-CoV-2 uh, cases are in COVID cases are increasing again, we have uh, polio in our sewers, um, and we have um, uh, monkeypox cases um, spreading in the community. So, this is what makes infectious diseases medicine so important and so interesting. It's that it's always changing. You've given some very recent examples there, um, and certainly I feel as somebody who's just a layperson that this is more I feel like zoonosis or zoonosis um, uh, is more on our radar than ever before uh, the the phenomenon of species species transmission of disease and everything that goes with it but is that just a perception that it's becoming more common is is this actually something which is increasing in frequency or is it just that we're more able to track it now I feel I feel um not not to be falsely modest but I feel very self-conscious answering this question in front of Kate because in all sincerity it was Kate's paper I mean Kate's sort of <laughs> seminal paper that really awakened me to the idea that this wasn't just an observation bias that this was really happening and uh, this is a thing that was so Kate, Kate has a particular, I guess, answer. The thing that I see that, that Kate's forced me through her work to focus on is, is asking that question if there are these slightly glamorous diseases that make their way out of the, the natural world. The viruses that spread among wealthy people are the ones that, that get all the attention. But we're, of course, also seeing um, the emergence of antimicrobial resistance as a, as a severe form of disease and the fungal infections are really terrifying and they are perhaps less linked to loss of biodiversity than they are to man-made climate change. Kate, what would be your response to that that question then, um, as somebody I, I, who's... So I, I think it's really interesting, uh, Chris's perspective on that. Um, but I would, I would kind of highlight... Um, the conversations I have with Chris is also being really informative to me. So, um, and what I mean by that is that Chris is from another field um, dealing with infectious diseases, kind of at the interface, ra rather than me just pontificating about it with a with a <laughs> with a model. He's actually, you know, dealing with that at the kind of clinical end, and. Um, I think there's a real disjunct between those two areas, which is, is incredibly interesting and very unfortunate at the same time. And it's one that we've got to bridge. We've got to bridge in a 
better and more holistic way. So you have like the, the kind of people who are dealing with the infectious diseases in, in the hospitals and, and the medics doing a fantastic job. And then you've got, you know, people like me, the ecologists, epidemiologists who are dealing with the, the original reasons for why these things are happening in the first place. So, you know, while, where we're transforming landscapes and we're changing climates and we're changing the ecological systems um, that these diseases normally inhabit. So these pathogens are normally circulating in these ecosystems and we're changing those ecosystems and then they're jumping into, into humans. And I think that medicine has kind of been a bit too siloed on dealing with the actual problem as in the person in front of you and the ecologists have been too siloed in not speaking to those health professionals in a way that everybody can understand so i think the ecologists have spoken to themselves and i think the medics have spoken to themselves and i think now we need a much better and more nuanced understanding of the whole system i also want to answer a different question i think what kate's saying is so important because clinicians infectious diseases clinicians and microbiologists i'm not sure we are approaching this problem yet in the way we did smoking so doctors were treating lung cancer and the respiratory doctors and the oncologists all went this is horrendous we are going to put together evidence and we are going to be the ones who regulate the tobacco industry and force that regulation and they did it very very successfully it was an enormous battle but i'm not sure that when we see uh, the very, very real problems that Kate is studying in clinic and the effects they have. I'm not sure we are really locating the problem out in the world. So, for example, I I now warn uh, patients who are thinking of um, getting pregnant, uh, 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 who are, you know, who are of childbearing age and may become pregnant, uh, when they when they travel to the south of France, that we now have Zika virus, which can cause uh, birth defects. Um, and it's very rare, but there has been transmission now in the south of France. So that is, we're seeing climate change moving those mosquito vectors further north, transmitting a virus that can cause really serious effects into Europe. And we don't really link that to climate change. I don't think in that conversation, we, we haven't become activists enough about it yet. I mean, or do, Kate, is that your, is that your perception? I do think there are increasing calls for, for um, you know, a, a more synergistic systems-based approach to thinking about infectious diseases, and, uh, and I think that's really welcomed. But if I just give you an example of how siloed it is at the moment, um, so there's all this talk about One Health. So One Health uh, was kind of born from medics and vets getting together and going, oh gosh, you know, we've got um, animals sick and people sick and that kind of interface is really interesting and really needs work. And then we've got um, Planetary Health, which is kind of medics thinking and, and public health people thinking, gosh, climate change is a real big problem. And, you know, there's also um, problems with infectious diseases and mental health. You know, we need to think about this in a more sustainable way. And then we've got um, eco health, which is the ecologist saying, gosh, we should actually be working together <laughs> with, with vets and medics. So you can see by those three terms, which effectively mean the same thing, but it just depends on 
which which part of that kind of part of that world you come from is what you call it and and that's a real problem <laughs> i think that's a real problem and i i think we're still a bit siloed we can't even decide on on an actual name to call this you know yeah no i i i'm fascinated by this as well myself i have an academic interest in this myself too, or research interest in this. I'd love to come back to it in a minute, but I just want to make sure that we've covered exactly what we're talking about when we talk about zoonosis itself. I think a lot of people who come to this um, fresh will think, well, how on earth does that contribute to disease in humans? That's quite a, quite a long way away from people, most mm. people's experience of health. So could you both explain to me however works it works in your particular practice in your work i kind of view it as um it's not it's it's not kind of biodiversity loss per se that's important actually it's more like you you have this these ecosystems and ecosystems are made up of animals in their animals and plants and microbes in in their environment so you have these kind of ecosystems which are working fine say say a forest or bottom of a lake or whatever and then you've got some kind of disruptive force so say it's climate change that you've changed the kind of um, tolerable temperature or rainfall limits for those some of those species in that system so they have to move they die or they move or you've you've cut down the forest and so you've changed the ecosystem now into something else so some species won't be able to survive in those environments so you've now got, you haven't got, um, you may not have biodiversity loss per se, but you've got a change in that ecosystem. And the species which tend to survive in those degraded ecosystems, or they can easily move into another area, are things which kind of live fast and die young. And they typically invest less in, in immunity and immune systems than species which are long lived and you know survive and reproduce quite slowly. And so it tends to be those species which we're then left with in these degraded environments or changed environments. And it's those species which tend to seem to, um, we're more susceptible for species, uh, for microbes to jump into, into humans. So every species on the planet, including us, has a huge variety of pathogens. So everything, that's just normal. And it's just when you change those transmission dynamics between animals and people that you have these jumps so that's when these jumps happen into human populations but we are changing the ecosystems into something that's more unhealthy and has a um, higher probability of of a microbe jumping into a into a human so it's it's about the ecology and the ecological interactions between species which is it, that's the cause of it that's the foundation and then it's how land use and climate change are, are changing those interactions and of course that's just one part of this system the other bits of it are you know the exposure of the human so what are the human behaviors which mean that you're more or less exposed to these this kind of zoonotic hazard this animal hazard or what's your susceptibility so if it happened in a, a really rich country which could put afford to put loads of money into healthcare centres or vaccinations, then you wouldn't, you know, it would this pathogen would leave 
into the human population, but it wouldn't be a problem because it'd be controlled. Chris, I... I can't help but wonder listening to how Kate explained that because it seems so obvious when when Kate explains what this is. What is it, do you think, that means that it hasn't been a bigger feature of our discussion about health and about where disease comes from and and how it gets transmitted and moves through populations? Um, in 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 certainly in medical uh, circles, but but definitely public discussion around this as well is it just we didn't know or is there other other factors there that's such a lovely question i think when kate explained the, what she just explained to, to, to both of us when she first explained that to me I, I had a very simple model that if you cut down a forest uh, the displaced bat is more likely to go and sort of live in someone's house or farm and and you're then exposed to the bat and kate's description of these degraded ecosystems with immune vulnerable animals that are then uh, viruses behave very differently when animals are immunosuppressed and i think it's had such an impact on my life every time i see an urban fox uh, and i think urban foxes where i live in hackney are in a particularly sorry condition i always think of how they are living in this sort of marginal landscape that they're not really evolved to and they're really ill and i don't think there is any fox related illness but it's changed it's just tweaked my understanding of my own local area I, I think there is also a parallel where we've seen with immune suppressed humans living in degraded landscapes which is probably almost most people on earth uh suffer with malnutrition of one form or another uh, and chronic infectious disease of another kind and we've seen this in the in in the covid pandemic there is a, a it's hard to be exactly certain, but we think that the population of HIV patients living in Southern Africa who are badly treated um, because they don't have access to the drugs that are their, their right and which they should and could have access to, we think that they serve as a, a reservoir for development of new, of, of a very high rate of new mutations. And so the, the humans as well exist in these degraded landscapes. Why we don't think of it, it may just be that what Kate is describing is fabulously complex and it's overwhelming in clinics when you are simply trying to deal with the human in front of you to start trying to solve um, or even engage with problems that feel so deeply enmeshed in our world economy and our world political system that I think a lot of clinicians just become a bit overwhelmed. So we think of HIV as a human disease. No one thinks of HIV as a zoonosis, for example. It's a disease that spread between humans. But it was a zoonosis, you know, pro probably first around 100 years ago. I guess also that's um, a problem with development money as well. Like, So it's kind of treating the child and bed nets to stop them getting malaria. But what about understanding the whole ecosystem mm. and how degraded it is? And, and mm. where is the money that goes into making sure that not just the child's health is increased, but the child, where the child lives <laughs> is not a degraded landscape, it's not polluted. And I think that kind of link between just treating the patient with that symptom and treating the patient within its environment is, is, not, is not quite there, although I think it is getting much better. Mm. Yeah, I, I was really struck when, Chris, you were talking earlier about how so much of how this how how this works the determinants behind 
these the uh, zoonosis um, and what everything we're talking about is linked in with our lifestyles and our culture. Um, and once you start getting into that stuff and put that stuff in play, it starts to get really complex, doesn't it? It's about it's about very complex systems and interdependencies and stuff. And my own background is public health policy, actually. So mm -hmm. I do I look at the politics of health <laughs> and how we even can talk about health amongst ourselves. The whole conversation around infectious diseases of all kinds is suppurating with stigma. And there is almost no way of describing uh, those at risk of particular infectious disease without stigmatising them and without suddenly getting into politics. And then we have, of course, the, the politics of vaccination and disease prevention. And, and I think that all intermingles with this idea that there's, there's no money in pandemic prevention. And so I think we have to ask what would be the incentive um, for those people and for many governments to actually prevent pandemic. There is a moral incentive that I think most of us feel, but I'm not sure that the incentives at the moment are very aligned. I think we're still not seeing anywhere near the investment um, that is that, that would match what the pandemics cost us in terms of human life and uh, the effects on the economy. Mm, yeah, I, actually, I'd love to talk about, about that. Um, to, to think about what you mentioned before, Kate, about one health approaches, um, and you explained them uh, in this in the context of you know all these different disciplines trying to come together. What are one health approaches when it comes to making policy around, um, uh, yeah, prevention of pandemics, for example? Yeah, I think um, there's a, a nice example with um, with a disease in West Africa where. Uh, the snails have the disease and they pass them on to humans. But if you have um, a more healthier ecosystem in those in those water bodies, it's a more balanced system so that, you know, you have uh, the prey base and the prey and the predators and you get less transmission of the, that disease into the human population. So that is a an example where you can um, have watershed rewilding and it also then means that you have less of a, a, a problem with transmission of infectious diseases. And, and those are really difficult, difficult problems, you know. So how can you ha still have food security, but still have wild areas for those species? So I think that's something to think about. But yeah, it's, it is a problem. It is, it is a tricky problem, but you're not going to solve zoonotic transmission without thinking about it in that way. Do you think, Kate, that a lot of this stuff runs against our historical experience in terms of like the way we've dealt with disease and pests is just to try and kill them? And that's that feels logical. If you if you have a vector of a disease, you spray everything with DDT, you um, uh, uh, you try and kill the, the, the vector or the reservoir. And that feels like it would work. And then we have all these very peculiar examples the one you've described and then that i always think the rabies one is is the most surprising that um the huge campaigns in uh, southeast asia to kill uh, unvaccinated dogs uh, that enormously increased transmission of rabies because what you really want to do is to have a very large number of vaccinated dogs acting as sort of soldiers in the fight stopping transmission from the small number of rabid dogs and so I think unless you're 
quite an instinctive, intuitive, expert mathematician almost. I think what Kate does is very mathematical. Your instinct takes you away from solutions and you end up applying pesticides, setting traps, killing things, destroying landscapes further and not understanding why it isn't working. Um, I think it's a really interesting point. It reminds me of, um, you know, the way that we farm food and had farm food before World War II. Um, and we had a rotational crop system that wasn't as efficient and didn't produce all the food that that was needed at the price that was needed. But And so that cuts down on pests, that cuts down on degradation of soil, that increases the microbial content of the soil and the right, sorry, ribosomal networks. Sorry. I'm so pleased you struggled with that. <laughs> ribosomal <laughs> networks. We had a system pre-World War II in this country which was sustainable. And to increase the production, we started putting on, ch changing that entire system and using some of the replacing some of the natural processes like rotational crops uh, with pesticide. And now we've got a destroyed landscape and destroyed soil, degraded soil, and it's becoming more and more apparent that that isn't sustainable. That isn't sustainable on many mm. levels. And so I think the, the, the kind of point I'm trying to get to is that we have put some quick fixes in because we had the technology to do so, but not the understanding of the system. So it does, it does seem to make sense to get rid of malaria and mosquitoes by pouring DDT onto them and reducing that kind of transmission cycle. But then that has massive implications for all of the other life on the planet, especially some of the birds. You know, that led to the environmental movement of Rachel Carson Rachel Carson talking about the silent spring where all the bird populations have gone. If you decrease the bird populations, who's going to eat all the insects? So you have to put more pesticides on. And then you've got runoff into the streams. You've got nitrification of the landscapes. You know, all of this is, is kind of not being costed in when we talk about our ecosystems and our economy. We're kind of it's kind of out of balance and it's not sustainable. So I guess it's, we need to move away from these quick fit, these quick technological fixes and a better understanding of how we manage our landscape in a much more sustainable way. So Kate, now would be a great time, I think, to explain in a bit more detail exactly how your research is contributing to that. Um, so I kind of started off um, a number of years ago when we started thinking about taking a more kind of quantified spatial look at where diseases emerge, where these zoonotic diseases emerge. And so we, we got together with um, a number of colleagues in the States and we um, tried to map out the first time that an infectious disease has emerged into the human population. So we looked at vector-borne diseases, which are, you know, like ma uh, malaria, dengue, or Zika viruses, and we also looked at zoonotic um, diseases, 
So we, we kind of looked at when those first occurred. So this is the first time that anybody had kind of mapped that out, but then thought about what the drivers were for this emergence. And so we came up with this, the first kind of hotspot map of where um, the biggest drivers were. And, and that was explaining some of these um, hotspots of emergence. So that was showing that areas where human population was the fastest growing, where biodiversity was the highest in terms of, you know, there was an interaction between biodiversity loss and human populations increasing. They were the areas where um, we've, we'd seen in the past these uh, infectious diseases emerging, these zoonotic diseases emerging. And so that kind of hotspot map was really influential in setting the agenda that there was a there was an environmental driver here which we could start to understand and make predictions about uh, where where the, the risky spots were in the future. And so these maps were taken up by USAID and they poured huge amounts of money into understanding and setting up new labs in these areas to start um, looking for new viruses and new pathogens. Chris, as from a, an infectious diseases uh, medical point of view, why was it so important to be able to draw that map? Well, I think there's there's the kind of theoretical answer, which is it allows us to make predictions and do public health and allocate spending and understand the impact in theory. And then there's the sort of actual answer, which is that it it has not had nearly the impact that it should have. If that does that make sense? That doesn't sound like I'm doing down Kate's research. It's just <laughs> this should no. this should have transformed the way we think about ourselves, about medicine, about the planet. We should have surveillance centers all over the place. We should be spending trillions of dollars on this a year. And, and that has not happened. Um, the reason it isn't. I think is not through inertia. It's not through lack of political will. It's because um, that we externalize all the costs uh, to the planet uh, and we privatize all the profits. And this has been the case since Rachel Carson wrote her book, Silent Spring, that um, there is simply no reason if you are a company um, polluting a river or, or making making profit from uh, things that increase the risk of pandemic disease and harm the planet and humans in all kinds of other ways. You don't pay the, the cleanup cost for anything, the literal cleanup cost of the swamp or the water supply or the sort of metaphorical cleanup cost of, of the disease. All those things are just picked up by the public purse. And until we start to uh, take those external costs and force the companies that create them to pay for them, uh, I think nothing will change. So it's it's extremely profitable to spray uh, crops with pesticides for ev for everyone involved in that system. And I love that point about World War Two and food supply, because a lot of my work now is about conflicts of interest and how money distorts agendas, particularly within medicine, particularly within the pharmaceutical industry, but also within the food industry. But as a scientist, as a clinician, it's very clear that um, industrial interest drives a lot of this problem. The ecosystems are degraded because the it's useful to grow oil palm on tropical forest. Um, and until the 
oil palm companies are made to pay for the pandemics that they cause, whether it is pandemic obesity, pandemic malnutrition, or pandemic disease, um, they will continue to cut down forest. You know, the 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 research not not just kind of highlighted where things were um, likely to emerge. Um, but I think one of the things that it did really well was make that link to biodiversity, you know, and make that 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 argument about degradation of ecosystems. And I think for many years, the kind of arguments were biodiversity loss equals pandemics, which is not strictly true. <laughs> but, but those arguments were actually quite useful in starting to change that narrative, you know, changing that narrative between, you know, ecosystem structures really important into um, preventing pandemic emergence. And I think that was kind of growing in momentum. And then I think the the COVID-19 pandemic really spurred that on. And I think there was a lot of stuff going on under the hood, if, if you like, for a number of years. And then with the pandemic, with the COVID-19 pandemic, I think that really did bring that out in, in a really spectacular way mm. where that where ecosystems are really important. And it, it fitted a narrative of um, nature-based solutions for climate change, you know, turn, thinking about how we use forests, how we use wetland, to mitigate and adapt to some of the climate change impacts, how we do sustainable farming and food, and and kind of um, Brexit showed us the the kind of um, fragility of some of those um, international um, trade routes. You know, so it all kind of came together, and then I think there was a real shift in understanding that ecosystems are important, and I think that. I saw that in real time happening. And I think that's that was really exciting. But I think if we hadn't had that kind of groundswell of, 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 of evidence, that wouldn't have happened. But I think that's what happened. I saw it happen in COVID-19, uh, which was, you know, in some ways horrifying, but also amazing that we saw the World Health Organization, UNEP, you know, uh, the UN... WWF, you know, all of these big organisations going, oh, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a link. We need to, it's another reason why we need intact ecosystems. My, the difference between, I think, Kate and I is that Kate is somewhat optimistic and I'm profoundly <laughs> pessimistic. And maybe, I think this comes from studying <clears throat> conflicts of interest. And what I can't understand is why Kate's research having come out, along with all the other research in this area, why do we still have ongoing transmission of HIV? Why are we still cutting down hardwood in tropical forests? Why are we still digging for oil? I mean, I, you know, but, but, but I, I think Kate's perspective is a much more useful one that, of course, we have seen change and we must keep, keep pushing for more change. But I, I, I would like to see much faster change, much bigger change, much, much faster. I think that's what Kate's research deserves as its outcome. I don't know, I've just been at it for a long time in terms of thinking about how to change people's minds. The kind of background I'm coming from was, uh, you know, 20 years ago, realising that we were in a, a kind of biodiversity crisis, a climate crisis, and nobody, nobody cared. And I've seen it come 360. 
And, and that gives me a reason to get up in the morning because I've seen, you know, young people being so engaged in climate change and wanting something to change and Sinction Rebellion with biodiversity loss and, and people understanding how ecology and, you know, ecology, I just mean the animals and plants and microbes and everything that makes up the world and their interactions uh, with humans in the middle or at the side or whatever <laughs> it is where we are, but we're, we're part of that system. And that system is incredibly important. It's our life support system. And I think I've seen people's attitudes change to that. And every day, you know, on the radio and the news, there's always something about climate change or food security and ecology and biodiversity. And, and that's what keeps me going. That's all for now. I hope to see you next time when I'll be talking to Professor Alan Smith about how his optical sensors are helping space agencies search for planets in the depths of the dark universe. If you can't wait until then and want to hear more about how UCL research is transforming society and the world, then why not take a listen to Made at UCL, presented and produced by our students. Finally, I'd like to thank our guests, Professor Kate Jones and Dr Chris Van Tulliken, and of course you, our listeners. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insight and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone.